I thought I was destined for a quiet and uneventful life of a college professor, but something went awry somewhere down the road. I think it was my itchy foot that got me in trouble. I grew up on a dairy farm in Scotland and went to Falkirk High School and Glasgow University and got a degree in agriculture, and then my itchy foot took me to Iowa State where I got a couple of degrees in genetics and animal breeding went on to Fort Collins, Colorado on a 25-year teaching career there on the campus at Colorado State University. And in the meantime, une année sabbatique dans la belle France à Jouy-en-Jossas, uh, près de Versailles, là-bas. In 1976, my itchy foot started hurting again, and we went off to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to set up a training program in animal science for young African scientists. We survived the coup and the horrendous uh, times of Mengistu Haile Mariam, came back to Fort Collins in 1978, and uh, resumed my teaching career. And then, while we were in Addis Ababa, we heard about all the troubles in Beirut and the civil war going on there, and we were thanking God that we weren't there at least. Things were bad enough in Addis Ababa at the time, but somehow, Five or six years later, I found myself there as the Dean of Agriculture. And in fact, we were enjoying it very much there on the campus of the very prestigious American University of Beirut, by far the most prestigious in the entire Middle East. Um, the things were not quiet, however, from the very outset. <clears throat> in April, Islamic Jihad had blown up the American embassy there in Beirut, and in October, they blew up the Marines, and 250-plus died there. A um, little later, four months or so later, the president of the university, Malcolm Kerr, a very distinguished Middle East scholar, was assassinated right outside of his office. And I went over to the administration building and stood over his pool of blood there on the ground and realized that if there was a, an anti-American hit list, if you will, I was probably next on that list. And so we had to evaluate the situation and decide whether we would stay there and do the job for which we had come to the American University. And in remembrance of Malcolm, we decided that we would and not cut and run home and decide that things were too dangerous. In fact, the embassy was telling us that it was dangerous and Americans began to be kidnapped and told us that we ought to leave. Well, they were right, I was wrong. I took the risk and stayed there and I was kidnapped. Two cars came alongside of my driver's uh, Chevrolet Caprice and cut us off and jumped out of there and uh, each one of the eight young men that came out had a submachine gun on him all over the place and I was standing in amazement watching them and they took me up into a two floors down basement interrogated me and that was the first of 16 different locations in which they held us there held me at least and many people were in different areas from which I was held the last day that I saw the sun for six and a half years, in fact, that day. And it was six and a half years of third world diet, uh, no sunshine, no fresh air, or very little thereof, uh, chains, ten minutes per day to the toilet, 
harassment and deprivation. <clears throat> Terry Anderson and I were chained up together for 70 of the 77 months that I was held and the 80 months that he was held. And we were in a, we were in a, uh, an apartment in Beirut at the time of the uh, war and at the Aoun's war, that is, where he tried to shell the Syrians out of Beirut, and that's kind of impossible simply to dislodge an army like the Syrian army out of southern Beirut by shelling it. But we experienced quite a lot of these shells as they came pouring in, and we were chained to the wall, couldn't do a thing about getting out of the way of them, and there were lots of them landing quite around there. And I tell you, I was scared. When you hear a gun go off with a bullet the size of your finger, and then you convert that into a six-inch shell, 155 millimeters, and that bangs right outside the window, it scares you, unless you're totally immune to that kind of thing. Well, things were pretty bad at times, and we could dwell lots on the negative, but I would prefer to dwell on the positive aspects of that experience. And in fact, our survival depended on just that, not dwelling on the negative, but always keeping a positive attitude toward life and toward our expectations. Terry Anderson and I, for example, uh, developed a little community of the two of us. And although he was a hard guy to get along with, he was much brighter than I was by far. And I resented that because I just knew that journalists couldn't be brighter than deans. And I learned differently that there are some who are. And after I learned to get along with him, which took about a couple of years, in fact, uh, <laughs> the next four and a half years were plain sailing. And that brain of Terry's proved to be a great resource. And we developed a little community of two among us. And that was very important. And there's a great lesson to be learned from that about getting along with each other, even when there are potential adversities. We kept our sense of humor most of the time, and we looked at many of these things which were just incredibly ridiculous that were happening to us, and we laughed about them. And John McCarthy, the young Englishman, had uh, lots of uh, mimicry going uh, after the guards went out of the room, and he had us rolling in the aisles at times. We developed a great appreciation for the small things in life, sunshine, fresh air, green grass, green leaves, flowers. This is my first spring in seven years, and I think it's greener and better and brighter than the spring has ever been in Fort Collins, Colorado before. I developed a great appreciation for my education, in fact, and for an active mind. It really was an active mind that kept us going. And, of course, the um, arguing and debating that our education and active minds allowed us to uh, engage in. We argued about everything, and I have to say Terry Anderson won most of these arguments, but not all of them. He once accused me even of being ignorant, and I was highly incensed. But you know, I was ignorant about the things that he was talking about, about books and whatnot. And I discovered later on that he was ignorant too. He didn't know a darn thing about agriculture. Well, I had to teach him all about that. We taught each other. He taught me all about literature and uh, I taught him French and taught him about agriculture. He taught me about the Marine Corps and the Vietnam War and so on. We read, in fact, hundreds of books during that period. And it was interesting how those uh, young men got them. The Westerners were leaving Beirut by the hundreds and they were unloading their books 
to the bookstores. And these guys would go and buy a box of, say, 100, 150 books and bring it to us and pass them out a dozen or 15 at a time. And we would read those and give them back and get another dozen. And uh, I could have used the Library of Congress quite well at that time, as a matter of fact. But the, the director, the uh, librarian of Congress, whom you just heard, said, well, we didn't have communication with you for some reason or other. Anyhow, we did get lots of books on everything from the Federalist Papers to Fanny Hill and John Updike to John Adams and, and uh, all the classics in the Forum book series and Gore Vidal and the whole bit, the, the classics like Thomas Hardy. We read much uh, in that period, and that helped to keep our minds alive and to pass the time as well. We had radio and television and we listened to the BBC World Service and to the Voice of America and the Voice of Israel. We learned a lot more about what was going on in Lebanon from the Voice of Israel than we did from the Voice of Lebanon, to tell you the God's truth. We saw the fall of the Berlin Wall and we saw Storm and Norman's Desert Storm and we were very proud of that. And I want to tell you a little story. Those kids that were holding us, they thought that the United States was afraid of them because they had blown up the Marines and President Reagan pulled the Marines out of Beirut. So those kids used to say to us, America's scared of us, Islamic Jihad. I said, baloney, America's not scared of you guys. But they kept insisting on that. Well, when Desert Storm came along, and I don't like wars and Terry Anderson didn't either, but Mr. Hussein asked for it and he got it. Anyway, when the Air Force was doing its marvelous job, we had an argument with one young man by the name of Mahmoud. And uh, I said to him, you know, Mahmoud, I had been listening to all the buildup that General Schwarzkopf was carrying out there and the number of troops and the amount of munitions and the whole bit. And I was just flabbergasted, and I'm sure many of you were as well. Never realized there was quite that much power in the face of the earth. I said to Mahmoud, Mahmoud, bet you $50 that when that war starts, I don't know where I was going to give him the $50, but I bet him anyway, when that war starts on the ground with, with General Schwarzkopf, it'll be all over in five days. And he said, no, 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 many days, many months, maybe America win, but uh, Saddam Hussein, Air Force no good, but on the ground, very tough, very tough. He gave America bloody nose. And I said, five days, Mahmoud. No, 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 many months, many months. Well, I was wrong. It didn't even take five days. And we were very proud, General Schwarzkopf, of what you did over there. And we watched it while we were chained to the wall <laughs> on television. Well, we also learned about faith and getting through. We always knew that we would get through there, and we kept our faith alive that one day we would be back in these United States, without a doubt, the greatest country in the world. In fact, I think the greatest country the world has ever known. And sure, there are a few problems along, and we have a mild recession going on, and there are still problems in society, but they're all getting patched up, and this is the best experiment in democracy that the world has ever known. It's still an experiment, it's still inconclusive, but it's a great one. And I knew that we would get back to Jean, who had spent all of these six and a half years in Beirut, while I was being held there in conformity. But in fact, it took a long time. It took two presidents. It took an Iran gate, a Libyan raid. It took an invasion of Kuwait, which released the 17 young men, incidentally, that were being hold and held in Kuwait and for which they were holding us. It took the, the uh, Gulf War there, the Desert Storm. It took President Bush and Secretary Baker holding firm 
And that's the only way that you can go when Americans are being held hostage. And my message to you about hostages is that it's tough, but there's nothing that the government should do in negotiating for these hostages. You simply have to stand firm. And if you give something for hostages, you make them valuable. And if you make American hostages valuable, somebody's going to take a lot more Americans hostage. And the only way to say is what President Bush and Secretary Baker has said from the day they went in, no deals, no how, never. And they didn't. And these guys, in fact, knew that they wouldn't get to first base with President Bush. Well, in November 1891, last year, release came for me, and I came back here to a tremendous welcome, some of which you just saw on television there. People have asked me, am I angry or bitter at these young men? And my answer is no, because, uh, you know, I could be bitter at them, and they wouldn't even know it. And in the meantime, I would get ulcers from being angry and bitter at these guys. Life's too bright, too nice in these United States now, too much fun to spend time being bitter. Did the government do enough? And am I angry at the government? And the answer is no because the government told us lots of times, get out of there. We took the risk, and we had to take the responsibility, and Gene never did go to the government all that time and complain or ask them or anybody else to do anything for her or for our three girls, because anybody could say, hey, man, you were warned to get out of there. And I thought I knew better than they did, and it turned out I was wrong. What are the chances for peace, sometimes people ask me. And I want to spend the rest of my time now uh, going for peace. Um, I've been traveling around. My itchy foot is still hurting me, and I'm traveling all over the United States and seeing places that I never saw before, and it's been wonderful. Um, and we've been supporting peace in the Middle East especially, but in the world at large, and whatever I can do for that, I want to do. Um, as Robert Frost said, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled, and that made all the difference. I'm not sorry that I took that road. I'm glad I survived. And uh, if you say that supporting peace in the Middle East is a futile hope because these people have been at each other's throats for decades and centuries, I want to just close with a little story that Jean and I heard when we were in Berlin recently. The guide, when we went on a city tour of Berlin, stopped in front of the, uh, the gate there. The, what is the, 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 no, the Brandenburg Gate. The Brandenburg Gate. And the guide, a German, told us, he said, when President Reagan was here in 1988, he stood in front of that gate and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. And the guide said to us, not one German alive in all of Germany believed that they would live long enough to see that day. And you know, one year later, the wall was down and the gate was open. And we saw that on television while we were chained to the wall. And we were very happy. I didn't think I would ever live to see that day either. So if you think peace can't come to the Middle East and to all the world, think again. You've got to have a dream. If you don't have a dream, 
how you're going to have a dream come true. You've heard that before. Dream a lot, folks. Thank you.